case you didn't know, I, you know, you are at a dangerous church. We're dangerous here. And the reason why we're dangerous is because we don't care who you are, where you've come from, what burdens you carry, what troubles are in your life, what your first name is or what your last name is. We don't care what color your skin is. We don't care what your political affiliation is. We'll take you right here because guess what? We're not in charge of this dog and pony show. Jesus is. And he's the one that's going to do in you what he wants done. I can't do anything. I hate to break your bubble. I can't do anything to help you. I'm inept. I mean, I got nothing for you. But if you come to Jesus, he's got everything you need. Everything. And so this morning we're starting off, and I just want to remind you about this teaching we're in, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is presenting to those who are listening what it means to be his true disciple. I I want to think that there were people who were attending. There are people attending church around our nation who would take a look at this teaching by Jesus, and they're going to go like, you know what? That's just a little bit too radical. That's just a little bit too much for me. It, it just requires so much, and I don't think that's for me. Matter of fact, what I think that's for is I think it's for crazy, overzealous, Jesus freak kind of people. And this Sermon on the Mount stuff, that's not for me. And by the way, let's not get too carried away because, you know what? I think that this teaching is just for people who are, just have way too much time on their hands. So let's just keep it a little bit simple and believe, but believe a little bit, not too much. Don't go and change anything about who you are. And by the way, uh, if you're going to live a life after Jesus like that, you get carried away. I'm just saying, you follow Jesus like Jesus telling you to do in here, you're probably going to lose friends. And who can afford to lose friends? And unfortunately... There are just people who feel that way. And and their thought is, let's just keep church at the minimal requirement for getting into heaven. Now, I personally don't think that there are levels or requirements for getting into heaven. Matter of fact, the Bible doesn't say there is a minimal requirement. There isn't a minimal requirement. There isn't an intermediate requirement. There isn't a maximum or overachiever requirement. It's all the same thing. It all comes together in one fact. Jesus made it really clear. He said this, if you keep my commandments, you abide in me. Just like I kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. So it's really simple. The requirements are to follow the commands of Jesus. It's not really that hard. I mean, following the commands are hard, but understanding what we're supposed to do isn't that hard. It's the actual step of stepping into it and doing it that makes kind of things difficult. I also want to remind you about those who came to the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus went to preach. There was a bunch of them. They came and sat at his feet. And they're different from those who were in proximity to Jesus. They were intrigued with his teaching. The first ones, they were hearers and appliers of the word that God was, that Jesus was teaching because they were looking for transformation. 
They're otherwise known as disciples. Those who are intrigued, they're listening, but only for the purpose of picking up on a pithy statement or two that they can share with others to sound spiritual and impressive. They're known as the crowd. So this morning, the question to you is, who are you? Are you a disciple or are you the crowd? My assumption is that most of you are pressing in on Jesus' teaching because you've come out of the crowd and are pursuing a life as a disciple and are no longer content with the spiritual platitudes that define your life. You're seeking, asking, knocking on the door of transformation because you want a spiritual renovation of your life so that you can become who Jesus says you are. So as you understand the implications of learning and applying Jesus' teaching to your life, you need to know that every time Jesus uses the word blessed, his, his, he is making a pronouncement about who you are. He's saying, my Father in heaven approves of who you are. You who are spiritually bankrupt have the Father's approval. You who mourn because you are spiritually impoverished Know the Father's approval. And today we're looking at the next two Beatitudes. And this morning, our first Beatitude is this. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Now this is a paradox. And Jesus is a master of paradox. Here are a few of Jesus' true paradoxes. First is last. Giving is receiving. Dying is is living, losing is finding, least is greatest, poor is rich, weakness is strength, and serving is ruling. Now, the beauty of a paradox is it grabs our attention, but it makes us go, what? That doesn't make sense. And that's exactly what takes place when you think about this beatitude that says, blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. But that's not necessarily true with what we know in history or our experience because we take a look of all those around us and we've come to the idea that meek do not inherit the earth, but rather the proud, the intimidating, the ruthless will inherit the earth. We have seen the strong, the self-sufficient, overbearing, the capable and aggressive, the ambitious. Those are the ones that only inherit the earth. But they not only think they inherit the earth, they think that they own the earth. Those are the kind of people, they, they're entertainers, professional athletes, politicians, the wealthy, and everyone who thinks that they're famous on Facebook for some reason. They, they really believe that they've inherited the earth. But you know, that's not what Jesus says. And far too often, we live for what pop culture says rather than what Jesus says. So when Jesus uses the word meek, what does he mean? And how has that word been misunderstood? So it's misunderstood, first of all, this way, is that meekness is not weakness. Meekness is not weakness. It does not denote uh, cowardice or spinelessness or timidity or the willingness to have peace at any cost. Neither does it does meekness suggest indecisiveness, wishy-washiness, 
or a lack of confidence. Meekness does not imply shyness of a withdrawn person as contrast with that of an extrovert. Nor can meekness be reduced to mere niceness. Meekness and gentleness are the words that describe the character of Jesus, which is why um, as Jesus was being assaulted and by the religious leaders of his day on his way to the cross, he demonstrated the full extent of meekness. He showed self-control throughout the entire ordeal. So, when Jesus says, blessed are the meek, he's really literally saying, blessed are those who demonstrate their strength of self-control, even when they would be justified not to. That's what Jesus did. Do you understand that? Do you understand that every time that the people came after Jesus, Jesus in his strength demonstrated meekness to all those who were around him. He left us this great example of what it looks like. And so the meek person is someone who is strong. He is gentle and humble and mild. He is in control. He's as strong as steel. That's not what we think of when we think of a meek person. We often think of a doormat kind of a guy that lets other people walk all over him. We think of someone who can't make up their mind or are or known of what they want in life. They are even thought of as someone who is spiritually inept. But that's not the picture that Jesus gave to us. He is the embodiment, the personification of what meekness looks like. Matter of fact, here are a few things that Jesus did to demonstrate that to us. When he was confronted by Pilate on his trial, he didn't defend himself, he kept silent. When his friends betrayed him and fled, he uttered no reproach against them. When Peter denied him, he restored him to fellowship and to service. And when Judas came and kissed him, betrayed him, handed him over to the leaders to be tortured, Jesus called him friend. And he meant it. On the cross, when those who, in the throes of death, when he was dying, he made a plea to his heavenly Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. That's a sign of meekness. Yet when it came to matters of faith and welfare of others, Jesus was a lion. He rebuked the Pharisees for their hardness of heart towards the people they were serving. He was angry when his disciples tried to prevent little children from coming to him. Jesus made a whip and drove out the money changers from the temple. And he said, and he called Peter, Satan, after he tried to deter him from his heavenly mission. All this came from Jesus, who is the epitome of gentleness. I want you to remember the invitation that Jesus makes to each and every one of us. It's an invitation that we need to hear regularly. It's one of those invitations that we need to write somewhere, put it on your refrigerator, put it on the backside of the door in the bathroom, put it somewhere where you will see this regularly because here's what Jesus says to us. He, his call, his invitation is, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That sounds like a promise we all need. 
I'm plumb tuckered out. I have spent more emotional energy in the last week looking what's happening with my granddaughter than I could ever have imagined. I have been going through the most difficult time of my entire life watching my adult children having to suffer through the agony of watching their child in a bed in a crib for two months almost now. And it breaks my heart and there's nothing I can do about it. I'm weary. I'm worn out. I'm heavy laden. But the promise is I will give you rest. Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Why do we learn from Jesus? Because this is the catcher. This is the phrase we need to understand and incorporate into our lives. Because Jesus says, I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. And that comes from the one who says, I am gentle and lowly in heart. I am going to tell you right now, that is what everybody needs to know because you are going through something difficult yourself. I don't know what it is. I know that there's three places we are in life. We're either coming out of a difficult time in our life or we're in the middle of a difficult time in our life. Or we're about ready to do something stupid and go into a difficult time in our life. And the fact is, is that Jesus is there no matter where you're at in your difficulty, in your circumstances. Jesus is smack dab in the middle of it, giving you an invitation to come and find rest for your souls. Amen? Jesus is meek. And he has a gentle spirit. And all of that comes to him off of one simple fact. The fact that he trusts God with the outcome. His gentleness, his meekness comes not from his own character, but from the strength he derives from his Father in heaven. And he's the one who helps us get through what we are having a hard time getting through. And that's where Jesus is telling us to rest. That's where he's telling us to find our place. And so the meek person possesses immense strength and self-control, which he exhibits in extending love rather than retaliation against those who do evil. When he trusts in God, he stands up fearlessly in the defense of others and of the truth as the occasion arises. When he trusts in God. That's where meekness comes from. It's not a characteristic that we develop on our own. I think that the, the promise that the meek shall inherit the earth is intended by the Lord to give us strength to endure in meekness when the natural inclination would be to defend ourselves or to retaliate or to give away to fretful anger. That's where we want to go. That's the natural inclination of our heart. That's where we oftentimes will find ourselves going to. And after we've been there, we have to repent because we weren't trusting in God to help us through that part. There's a passage in 1 Corinthians 3 that helps me see how the promises of inheriting the earth give strength to our meekness. In verses 18 through 23, Paul tries to help us overcome pride because pride, by the way, is one of those things that stands in opposition to the meekness of Jesus in our lives. Understand the Corinthians were, were boasting in different teachers. They were always talking about, hey, well, my teacher is so-and-so and, and, and I went to such-and-such a school out east. And 
um, then they have their worldly wisdom. So here's what Paul says. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise are futile. So let no one boast of men. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. You see how that, how that plays in? Notice the logic of, of verse 21. Let no one boast in men. For all things are yours. And, and the one thing mentioned that is ours is the world. Does that mean the possessions of the world? No, that's not what it means. It doesn't mean that we own all the government property as much as we would like to. It doesn't mean that you can trespass wherever you want to go. That's not what it's saying. You still obey the, the, the laws of the land. What it's saying is don't boast because the world is yours. This is what it kind of looks like. You don't need the vain pleasures of one-upmanship because God has already made you an heir of the world. I mean, have you ever been talking with somebody and they ask you a question, you explain something about your life, and they go, oh, yeah? Well, there was this time when I was, you know, and it was, I was, man, I was, I was the hero. I was great. And you're like, oh, okay, well, good for you. You see, and so... For us, when we're Christ followers, that kind of idea of the one-upmanship is really quite unnecessary. How would I feel the need to brag about my house being bigger than your house if I knew that my father owned the city and I was the beneficiary of his will? I don't need to boast about anything. God's got it covered. The quietness and openness, the vulnerability of meekness is very beautiful and very painful. It goes against all the things we are by our sinful nature. It requires supernatural help, and that help is available. Praise God. If you're a disciple of Jesus sitting at the feet, at his feet, on the mount this morning, that is if you trust him and you commit your way to him and wait patiently for him, God has already begun to help you and will help you more. The primary way that he will help you is to assure our heart that we are fellow heirs of Christ and that the world and everything in it is yours. Listen to this. He who did not spare his son, but gave him up for us all, will he not freely give us all things with him? I mean all things. No good thing will he withhold from those who walk up rightly. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. What does, 
Jesus mean when he uses the word righteous? It's a subjective righteousness, an inner righteousness that works itself out in one's living in conformity to God's will. Righteous living. Righteousness is being pure in heart before God. And He alone knows the heart. Those who do not hunger or thirst for righteousness are merely following a a tradition set before them. They have only one thing in mind, and that is to be self-righteous. The process of fulfilling the requirements of self-righteousness is that they know how to be religious. They go to church, and they participated in religious activities. But the passion, the hunger, the thirst of their lives was not for righteousness. It was self-serving. And therefore, they will not be satisfied, not in this world, nor in the next one. So a deep, lasting satisfaction for our souls comes not from the delights of the world, nor from merely religious or vertical relationship with God. Satisfaction comes from God to those whose passion in life is to know Him, to know Him in the struggle of life of being like Him in the middle of this world that says, be yourself, not like someone else, especially not like God. The psalmist, if you've not read the psalms or you haven't read them lately, I want to encourage you to go back and start reading the psalms because a lot of the things that we have difficult time articulating in our own words, the psalmist has already articulated them for us, and we can adapt those things into our life. And his passion and his desire, especially David, to know God and to know God passionately came out in his his writings that, that poured forth from his heart. I mean, he, David was, was magnificent at expressing his heart for God. And as Courtney so beautifully read this morning, Psalm 63, 1, he said this, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. This is the way it is for those who have made God their top priority. They'll never be satisfied with leftovers. They don't just want a crumb. They will never be completely satisfied with what they've received yesterday. They want more. They want more. You know what? Um, I had an accountability partner for about 15 years up in Canada. We went to school together. Kevin and I became really close friends. He was another pastor, and we lived about an hour apart, and there was this nice little town that was halfway in between, and we would meet once a week together. We would have breakfast. We'd ask ourselves hard questions, each other hard questions. We would talk about Scripture. We'd talk about family. I mean, we just did the whole accountability thing. And... One of the times when we were getting together, um, I, you know, one of our regular questions was, where are you reading in God's Word and what do you sense God saying to you? It's accountability. 
It's, if nothing else, it made you go like, I better get into God's Word and read something and figure out what God's trying to say to me so I have something to say at my meeting. And so Kevin came one time, and I asked him that question. He goes, well, actually, I haven't had a lot of time recently, and so I just picked up a, a daily bread, and I read out of that. And I went, okay. And by the way, hear my heart. The daily bread is a, a good help for, for a lot of people to get started with. And I looked at Kevin, and I said, so, did it satisfy your soul, or was it called the daily crumb rather than the daily bread for you? Now, that was for Kevin because I was his accountability partner. And he's like, you know what? I need to go deeper with God. Well, Jesus' point here is that the only approach to full satisfaction is by the path and, of hunger and thirst for righteousness. That's the only path. Remember, remember when you first came to Christ? There was a hunger for the things of God that could, you could not get quenched. You couldn't get enough of God's stuff in your life. And it seemed like every time you turned around, you were discovering something new about God that propelled you on your journey with Jesus. You were joyously um, desperate for the things of God. You also cared about the world and its spiritual famine. You welcomed opportunity for self-sacrifice and were willing to go for it all. But, time blunted, your desires, the reality of life took over, the, dedic the, the delectable hunger ceased, now you're content with a life of crumbs, with a life of leftovers from somebody else's journey. You must never be satisfied with someone else's journey. You must create a desperate hunger and thirst in your own soul to get back to the place of knowing satisfaction. Knowing satisfaction. You know, Jesus, he, he was so masterful at helping people to understand what they so desperately needed. He, he would lead them to a place to where they would have the aha moment. And he did that particularly with who we call the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. And, and Jesus was sitting at the well during midday, and this woman came out of the city a very unusual time to collect water for herself. And as she came out and she had this conversation with Jesus, Jesus was leading her down the path so that she had a clear understanding that her life was not bringing any satisfaction to her at all. Matter of fact, all the relationships with men that she had left her empty. And then Jesus said these words to her. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water I will give him will never thirst again, be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Can you imagine the mind-blowing thing that was for this woman. All of her life, she has lived a life of dissatisfaction. She has not found anything that has satisfied her deeply. And all of a sudden, at the most unexpected place in her life, at the most unexpected time of the day, she bumps into a man who says, I will bring you the greatest satisfaction in life, but, and it will only come from me. 
You know what she did? She took Jesus up for the challenge. And her life was radically transformed and changed. She brought the entire town out to meet Jesus. They begged him to stay. He presented the gospel, the good news of the kingdom of heaven coming from up there down here. And many put their faith in Jesus as the Messiah. When Jesus was talking to the crowds after he had fed the 5,000, they wanted more. But what they wanted more of from Jesus was they wanted more miracles. They wanted him to prove himself more, to give a better demonstration of proof that he really was who he was. And and Jesus says, I'm going to give you the proof and I'm going to show you what it looks like, but you have to step into it and it's not going to be a miracle. And Jesus gave to them what they did not see coming and it was an offer of something that was far more satisfying than the proof of a miracle. Here's what Jesus said to them. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me never thirst. God's call to everyone this morning is to come. It's not just to come and find rest for your soul, but it's to come. Come to Him. He's got everything you need. He's, got the, he's the only one that can bring satisfaction to your soul. Matter of fact, Jesus and God understood that long before Jesus came as the baby Jesus and, and made His way on earth for 33 and a half years. In Isaiah, the prophet, God said this through the prophet Isaiah. Come, everyone who's thirst, who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without any money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. What God is talking about there has nothing to do with the satisfaction of our human body, the flesh. What he's talking about is he will give to you everything that you need in order for your soul to find deep, meaningful satisfaction in him and him alone. What are you seeking that's not satisfying? I really think, and, and by the way, I'm not just talking to you. I'm talking to me. Because there are times in my life when I start to seek things that, that are they're a false well. They're an empty cistern. They don't hold any water. And they cave in on themselves. And Jesus is the true well, the living water. And we go to these false cisterns, these empty wells, and we dig into them hoping that we're going to get something satisfying out of it. And at the end of the day, we walk away and we're not satisfied. So what is that thing that you're digging into that brings no satisfaction in your life? What are you hungry for? What is the one thing you're seeking with all of your heart? We're going to get to this part of the Sermon on the Mount in a little bit, but it is, it is so apropos to what we are talking about this morning. And, and it is worth hearing a multitude of times. It's worth writing on the tablets of our heart. And, and it's Jesus' words to us. He's giving us instruction and direction for the things that we need to satisfy our hearts, our souls. 
He said this, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. What are you seeking? We must remember that Jesus has provided us with a menu and an appetite. The main course is righteousness, conformity to his will. The method is desperation. We are to hunger for righteousness and so pursue it with all that was, is in us. The result is profound satisfaction now and forever. So here, here it is. The progress, the progression in these first four blessings. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. We must begin with the first beatitude, to true poverty of spirit, realizing there is nothing within us that commends us to God. We must affirm our spiritual bankruptcy. Next, we must graduate to the second beatitude, truly mourning our sins as well as the sins around us and our spiritual insufficiency. Then we must ascend to the third beatitude by allowing our spiritual bankruptcy and mourning to install in us, instill in us a truly meek and gentle spirit. And finally, as we live the logic of the beatitudes, we will be able to desperately hunger and thirst for righteousness. There are few things more important to our spiritual appetite. We are what we eat. Come and dine with Jesus, the bread of life, the living water. I just want to say that this morning, if you are one of those, you're, you're, you're sitting here and you're hearing what Jesus is saying to you and you're like, I am desperate to get back to the place where I know God's word in my life so that I am hungry and thirsty for the righteousness of God, but I have let the things of life roll over me and I don't know how to get back. I've got a tool. I want you to understand this is simply a tool. It is not a magic pill. It still takes dedication, discipline, and work. But if you are desiring that you could get back into favor or you're in favor with God, but gap, get back into the place where you know that you are thirsty and uh, hungry for the righteousness of God and you want some help doing that, come and see me. I've got this. This is a little, it's called a life journal. I've got a few of them. And so first come, first serve. If you want help getting back, you come see me. I will give this to you for free. We're giving away all kinds of stuff this morning. We're going to give away a book, um, The Seven Wounds of Christ. We can give away a life journal. And most importantly, what we're going to give away today is we're going to give away Jesus because he's free for the taking. Our Father, we thank you that you love us. We know that you are... Uh, always in our corner. We mess up, we screw up, we go the wrong places, we do the wrong things, and yet you say you approve of who we are. You no longer want us just to sit 
and maintain our integrity. You just want us to come to you and seek you out with all of our hearts. And so we ask simply today, God, that you would come and minister to us. In Jesus' great name, amen. We're going to...